New Year. Well, I don't know when we're going to be dropping these, but it's the new year for us. Um, Welcome back to the Crime Library. Today, we are going to kind of be picking up, but in a different way. We covered In Cold Blood last time, and this week we are going to be covering Furious Hours. Uh, is there a the, subtitle? There is a subtitle. You suck at subtitles. No, because my, on my Kindle, it just says Furious Hours. Uh, it's The Murder, Fraud, and The Last Trial of Harper Lee. That's right. Yeah, no, on my Kindle, it just says Furious Hours as the title. You just have a hate affair with subtitles. It's not my, well, the, the in cold, not in cold blood, the uh, Golden State Killer one. <laughs> that was a lot. That got me every time. Well, this this one was a lot too. I couldn't always remember. Like I had to Google every time. I remember Furious Hours, but I couldn't remember the rest of it because it's a lot. Murder, fraud, and the last trial of Harper Lee, which was also weird to me because what was the first trial of Harper Lee? She didn't really sit through the trials of, did she? Yes, she did. Yeah. I mean, she, cause she grew up like with law her entire life. Oh yeah. Okay, so Mockingbird was literally about. A See, this is why we talk about this stuff because <laughs> I, I, was, I was so confused. I was like, "What was she involved in another trial?" Or yes, going to study law, but you know, <laughs> I know. Okay, yes. All right, so let's get it. Let's talk about this shit. It's what three parts? Yes. Yeah, it's broken down let's- into. Start with your feelings on it because you are a huge Harper Lee fan. Yeah, what do you think overall? I really liked it overall because it's not what I was expecting. Oh, pause really quick. What's really Sorry. funny? My note is I have the whole title of the. <laughs> I should have read that first, but anywho, yes. all right. It was not what I was expecting because yeah. I was. I a lot of the like the last part about Harper Lee a lot of that stuff I already knew because I've watched like things on her and read things on her and so so but I mean obviously I didn't know all of it I thought a lot of that was really cool and I had no idea she was trying to write a true crime novel right for years and years and years and it never panned out but I liked how they broke it into the sections because as we talk about it we're going to find out that a lot of the research she was doing for her true crime novel, a lot of it was just rumors. A lot of it was just hearsay. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was cool how she didn't try to cover it at, like as a true crime, like who done it type thing, even though we know who's done it, but that she really just was like, this is the facts that she got. Not all of them are actually, fa-. you know what I mean? I think it's cool. Yeah. They, they make a point in saying that like um, in with true cult or true cult, but <laughs> <laughs> with In Cold Blood and Truman Capote, he fictionalized things. For Harper Lee, it was literally just everything was black and white, and she wanted to come at the story with just the facts, and that's really what ended up, I think, in my opinion, um, ended up like being why she didn't write the book, because there was so much rumor, so much gossip, not a whole lot. She never met the Reverend, like not a whole lot of actual facts to base things on then i think she couldn't wrap her mind around it she couldn't put it into the same way truman Capote did so yeah because that just wasn't her as a human like i think you could kind of tell reading in cold blood and then doing like more research on it that we did you can kind of tell that truman Capote was like arrogant like yeah that was something that too like 
So in the last section of the book, part three, and like you said, we get a lot of her um, life story. And that's something that I really enjoyed because I don't know, I guess from coming away from it, knowing that she helped him write in cold blood, I thought they had this like amazing relationship, but they really couldn't have been two more different people. And maybe they did in their own way, love each other a lot, but there was a lot of like, like in this book, he it talks about how he spread rumors about her, about who she was sleeping with, and like told press things that she thought were private, and all this kinds of things that I didn't know about their relationship before. So it was very, it was interesting to me to learn about In Cold Blood after we had already read it, and wow. then to learn more about Truman Capote too is a very big part of this book and his character and how he plays out in her life and. Yeah, so I always enjoy things that are we did it we did it right because <laughs> I'm glad we picked this because it was like a follow up. Yeah, with what we had just read, and but it was still something new at the same time. Like it wasn't yeah. just like Harper Lee's story of Truman Capote. It was just his influence and their friendship, like you said. So yeah, to see a little bit more into that, and I think it's interesting too because this is such a deep south book everything that happens is like based on the deep south and and how living there made harper lee but also truman capote who spent his time between the south and new york into the people who they were and it's such a weird dynamic i think that creates people when you have creative people living in such a kind of tight constrained community like the south can sometimes be it really brings something like awesome out but also something sad because they're both really sad about it sometimes like harper lee ended up being an alcoholic so truman Capote overdosed and died there's a lot of like demons that they have to fight and i think growing up where they grew up didn't necessarily help them Mm -hmm. i agree with that and it is such a southern and the thing I like so the first part is um what the reverend right yeah and the thing I like about the part of the reverend is we get a lot of backstory of certain things like we get a lot of information about um insurance and insurance fraud and how, how this man who the whole story about him is that he took out five people in his family well, around his family because there was his what his nephews his two wives his one wife's husband so what what is that six people and then his yeah like his adopted daughter Mm -hmm. so he would put life insurance policies on everyone and apparently back then you didn't have to have their approval you could just take willy fucking dilly and excuse the pun because his name is willy but you could just fucking take it out on everyone and no one had to there was so much fraud happening what the hell it's crazy i know this man had insurance he probably had insurance on people he never even met before he had so much everyone (laughs) every fucking one what is that about and it's so weird to me too because his first it all started with his first wife mary right but they were married for 20 years before he took out an insurance policy i mean they had collected a lot of debt and like he was failing in a lot of ways not you know, thriving. And I guess he saw it as a way out, but they were married for 20 years before this became an option to him. So I don't know. It's, I would love to know more about what pushed him to that. Like what, what made him decide that she was suddenly disposable to him. 
And it was, they were saying that like, it would be like immediately after they died, he'd be like, all right, let's, oh, yeah. go, let's go cash in on this. Like he didn't even freaking take any time to like grieve that his wife died, mm-hmm. that he'd been married to for 20 years. It's like, you know what? We're just going to go cash in on this insurance oh, policy. It, it wasn't just one insurance policy. It was like five, a, a bunch of different companies that he ended up fighting with and that's how you meet his lawyer who it becomes the subject of the second part of the book but it's not like how do you not cross-reference that even back then how do you this was the 70s right I'm pretty sure Mm -hmm. how do you even back then it's not like this is way way back in the day how do you not cross-reference that this person has like a million dollars over five companies Right. Out on of life insurance. Yeah, exactly. How does that seem legal? <laughs> I right. just don't and understand that. Possible, like saying like Willie Maxwell and the people he has his insurance on. And it's like, wait a second. Yeah. Insurance on this person, this person, this person. I don't think we're going to sell you any more insurance. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah. So by the time he got to his last victim, Shirley, his uh, third wife's stepdaughter, like she was a relative of his third wife's. It's a con- Confusing thing. But by the time he got to his last victim, you would think that they would stop selling him life insurance policies. Oh my gosh. And the amount of trials that he went through because the insurance policies were like, no, like we don't want to give him this money. Yeah. He always like ended up getting money from them. They're the same company. That's the crazy part. It's like he should have been like blacklisted. I don't know if that's a thing, but it should have been for him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a thing now. I think they definitely have come a long way now, but apparently not back then. Apparently you could just fucking take out life insurance wherever you felt. You could take it out on your like employer. You could take it out on your next door neighbor who you have no fucking speaking of next door neighbors. Oh yes. Let's fucking talk about the fact that his second wife saw <laughs> who is first of all, her her name is Dorcas, yeah. which I don't care what time period you're from. That's never a good name. Like no. the name is not good, but she saw specifically saw his first wife leave to go meet him and get set up to get killed. Yep. Like tells the police about it. And then at his trial for his first wife and so that ends up being like, no, I didn't really see that. <laughs> and then yeah. ends up married to him. Yes. And, and I, it was such a blow for the trial because that was their, that was going to be their saving grace to like get this guy right with a guilty charge. And when she changed her testimony, it like ruined the whole, whole case for. The and there was a quote about it. Um, after they get married, there's a quote in the book that says, uh, with both their spouses dead, because there was theories that he killed her husband too. He was a sick guy. He like had been in the hospital all the time, but he suddenly passes away after Mary's been killed. But in a car accident, according to Willie. It says, with both their spouses dead, the widow, widower Maxwell and the widow Anderson said their vows on November 21st, 1971. The day after that, the reverend's insurance man came by. And that was the end of one of the chapters. But he wastes no fucking time. He gets in and out of that. All right, I'm married. Let's get you some insurance. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to you? You clearly know that he killed his first wife yeah and he got away he could not have been that smooth of a talker to like talk her well i guess he was because she married him they were like so 
there was a huge age difference between them too. Yeah. There was like what? Like, I don't even know. She was 20. There was like 20 something years. I mean, he was 46. Yeah. So yeah, that's almost 20 years. It like blows my mind. He must, he, I guess, because I don't know anyone like this personally. I don't know someone that can talk their way in and out of things that the way he's described, like, I don't know someone who can con your next door neighbor who knows that you killed your wife into, unless he was like, Hey, look, I'll kill your husband. And then we can hash in on the insurance policy together. But it brings me back to like that old saying, like if, if someone cheats on you or cheats with you, they're going to cheat on you. So same thing. Let's just say same thing for murder. If someone, you know, <laughs> murders their wife to be with you. You're going to be safe. Yeah. You're probably going to get murdered by them. That's just the. And especially if you, the insurance man comes around and now he's taking out life insurance policy on you. And you know, he killed his wife for that. And possibly your husband. Yep. Your husband's death. And it's like, no, nah, he's not going to do that to me. <laughs> Just let's let's agree to never be that fucking naive, okay? Let's make a pact to never be like, yes. oh, but he kills everybody else, but he's never going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Which then brings us to his fucking third wife, who was a suspect in helping him because all of these crime scenes were exactly the same. This is another thing that blows my mind and eventually probably could have been made into a book, but not as how Harper Lee wanted it as factual. But the story behind it is interesting because he didn't, he barely went anywhere to cover his tracks. He picked the same road, the same roads, like the same method, like claiming that they were in a car accident and it's you have to have but someone they help would you go to the car and the car would look like it was barely an offender vendor yeah and that person had clearly been like killed not just smashed their head on the windshield or something like that every single time it's clear that it's murder but he keeps getting away with it over and over and over again so the premise of this crime really is interesting right. and mind-blowing but that i think 90% of it has to do with this lawyer. It has to do with the law and no one being it. Because another thing that we learn a lot about, we learned about the insurance, but we learn a lot about voodoo. And I thought that was so interesting how this culture, the small town culture is just so afraid of him based off of, you know, these voodoo, voodoo rumors. And just, he built up this persona of being like, something that can't be touched after getting away so many times with killing people. So I think it's interesting. The whole thing could have been a, it could have been a book, but there wouldn't have been enough thing and like entertaining enough. But yeah, like we said, a lot of it was just based off of the townspeople and what they heard because yeah. People kept saying he was into voodoo, but there was never actual any proof of that. And right. A part of it's called like the seventh sun, the seventh sun, which is a, a voodoo thing that's supposed to be like, if you are the seventh son of a seventh yeah. son, then you are more powerful and blah, 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 all this stuff. And in react- actuality, his parents didn't have seven kids and he wasn't the seventh son. There's so much like myth around it where right. I think it has to do a lot with like, not wanting to believe that someone can just be born and be this evil, like something else has to be happening. So because he was like a pastor, like he yeah. was a preacher and a, he was the reverend and he 
preached God and God's word. And then he went into, was, you know, involved in all this crime and all this fraud. And I mean, so I think uh, for a lot of people, it was easy to, to push it to that because I'm sure many of those people were Christians and believers in God. They're like, there's no way that he's speaking the God's word, like God's word. He has to be doing some, some devilish things. Some voodoo shit. Voodoo shit. I think voodoo in itself is really fucking interesting. And the way she described it in the book, yeah, the way she described it and how um, she talks about how when slaves came over and African-Americans came over and, like, their culture was so, everything was so, like, tried to be squashed down and diminished that it ended up being, like, stuff they practiced in secret and stuff that they didn't want to let other people into. And it's such a secret place and a a very sacred part of their life and their religion and their culture that they don't let people in very often and there have been people who have tried to get close to it but if you're not born into it or brought into the community by people who are already there it's hard to get a lot of information and I think that's fascinating like it talks about how uh America white Americans in the early days turn their back on voodoo so then voodoo turned their back on outsiders and i thought that was just a really good explanation for voodoo in general they ruin everything they ruin everything (laughs) (laughs) how like it wasn't even like a year later right that um jorkas met met her fate (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't stay married to her very long. And so that brings us to the third way that I was saying uh, was an accomplice in the first one. She just was never charged, which, again, if you know that he killed somebody, he doesn't end up killing her. I don't know why. Maybe he actually felt something for her in his weird, cold little heart. But she has a stepdaughter, of her ex-husband's relative. Um. And she ends up being the last victim, Shirley, the 16-year-old girl. All of the stories behind their victims, they all are the same, like we said. Like, they're oh, she went off to visit someone somewhere. She went off to her sisters over here. She went off to do this over there. And she just hasn't come back. And then we happened to find her when we went to look for her. Like, it's all very predictable. Very strange that it can happen over and over and over again. But they did say that they really thought that they could get somewhere with Shirley's case. Yes. But then the reverend, the day of Shirley's funeral, was shot in the church. Yeah. So that was some, uh, what do you, I wanted to know what you feel about uh, Mm -hmm. Robert Burns. I want to know how you feel about Robert Burns and his actions because. Vigilante, which I know is like, it's a very split, like divide. Like it's it's a very work good like is killing a killer yeah that that's what i want that's what i want to know from you hero and it's hard like when i first saw boondock saint i like had this same type of dilemma in my mind like is this the right thing and i honestly don't know um i think that justice should be served and yeah but it wasn't that is justice but i don't support like capital punishment and I'm not like a death penalty person. So I think for me personally, like justice still should have been served to Robert Burns. 
but maybe not to the extent of like first degree murder. <laughs> but I don't. It's just hard. Like I. Don't, it is I don't hard. Know. It's hard because uh, I understand wanting to put a stop to someone who is blatantly killing and getting away with it, and people say trust the system, but if the system five times has let this guy go. It's like, that's with this crime, especially it's like, that's the thing. It's like, it's hard. Yes. We were trying to let you guys take care of him. And now, now my family is dead and he's probably still just going to get away with it. Like I understand his emotions. Yeah. I I understand his (laughs) reasons. Yeah. I think I, uh, in this specific case, I think I understand it more than other things. There's a story about a guy uh, that always keeps coming up on my um, TV to watch about how there's a town where this man was shot in the middle of town and literally the whole town was there to see it and no one has ever said who did it because he was such a prick to everyone in the town and like this truly awful guy and everyone knows who shot and there's there was more than one person who like shot at him or whatever, and they all decided to like keep the secret together. And I I kind of understand those situations. Not saying I could ever be a part of it, like, but I understand being so like broken and frustrated that you're at this funeral of this 16 year old girl who didn't have to die except for these greedy ass people took life insurance out on her body, like. I understand it more. I don't know what that says about me, but I understand. <laughs> that's what I mean. And that's why it's like such a, I feel like there is like a huge gray area in it. Because yes. Especially like we were just saying with this case, like he's, he's gotten away with such heinous things and like how much more was he going to get? How many more people have to die? Yeah. And he is ballsy as fuck to go to her funeral and act like he didn't kill her. Like, fuck you. Yeah. Sorry. That was a little, that was a little much, but I just, he was so fucking ballsy and got away with so much. And like I said, a lot of it's his lawyer, which I think is an amazing irony because Tom Randy was his lawyer. He's such a strange character to me in the way of everything. So Tom Randy was his lawyer and he politically was a very fair person. He wanted yeah. to fight for everyone, no matter what their skin color. He's for integration. He was for a lot of, like, all of the Jim Crow laws being gone and all of that stuff. So his, I don't know what his philosophy actually was, though, because when it came down to it, he was the reverend's lawyer. Every single time he killed these people, it's blatantly obvious he killed these people, but it didn't matter to Tom because he just up everyone's case the book said like he never discriminated against anyone and sometimes i think you have to if you're fighting so hard for people to all be equal i think you have to sometimes not take the case of a dickwad who keeps killing people yeah completely but then he turns around and uses the irony of it is robert burns shoots the reverend he turns around the next day and Tom Radney ends up being his lawyer. And now his whole defense is everything he knows about the Reverend and his shitty deeds. Yeah, exactly. He was going to use all that information to his advantage for his new client, which is crazy because he spent so many years defending the murdered man. And Which is like, I think for the Reverend, a lot of it was money because he did, yeah. he get a, he got a lot of chunks of, the life insurance policies. Yeah. 
But I don't think that Robert Robert Burns didn't have a lot of money. So I thought it was interesting that he decided to uh, defend him because I think in the Robert Burns case, it wasn't about the money. And that's something that they talked about when they, starting up his own law firm, they called it the zoo because they the said zoo, there were yeah. so many people in there. And he would, he was, like you said, willing to help anybody. They were saying that he would charge them like based on their, what they could right. pay. So if he knew that it was a wealthier client, he would charge them more money. Some people he would just charge them for like a pie or from some groceries. Just he wanted everyone to have a fair trial. Um, right. And I think that's such a beautiful thing in a lawyer because obviously, like you said, maybe like defending the Reverend was about money, but I think in his heart of hearts, he did want fair justice for all. And I think that's Yeah, but important. is fair justice that he keeps going free? Yes, every... Yeah, okay, so I get what you're saying is that everyone, no matter who they are, deserve representation is what you're saying. Yes. And you think that that's solely where Tom Radney comes from, which is, you're right, beautiful and a, a more noble thing than just wanting the money. So, but they also called his practice the Maxwell House because a lot of his fucking wealth came from the Reverend. The Reverend. So, and something that Harper Lee, um, like mentioned, um, was that like when Harper Lee went and was meeting with these people and getting information for the book, um, you know, she became really close with the Radneys, mm-hmm. and Tom said to Harper that he had no intentions of help of defending Willie in the case for Shirley. Like, yeah, he but was, no, I was not going to be his lawyer, but Harper Lee exactly, yeah. didn't really fully believe him. She thinks he kind of wanted to cover his tracks. Because yeah, backtracking, that- because you can't really know what he would have done. Exactly. There was no, no choice, no chance for him to prove that he wouldn't have. Yeah, and he didn't want to, like, smear his name even more. Yeah. Because, like you said, they did have a pretty good case against him. For the murder of Shirley. Well, so that and... Somebody with such, like, actual facts. One of his last murders, he had to call and get it prosecuted in Washington because he had literally said he ran out of juries for Reverend Maxwell yeah. in... Um, what fucking state is this? Alabama. In Alabama. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, because everyone around the area and as it was becoming like bigger news and stuff, they were like, it was probably very impossible to get a fair trial. Um, Yeah, but uh, fair, is it fair that he kept getting trials because he kept killing people? So is it really process of law? That's American law. That is our system. That is what we do. We have the rights. To a trial by jury. Our opinion of, of this. Peers and of American citizens. Our opinion of this is clearly different. because <laughs> I think that there is some great things about a j- trial by jury. And I think it's also very scary because humans are humans. And mm-hmm. I've served on a jury and I know how hard it is to put your own biases aside and actually just look at the law as the law and it's really it's really hard to do and I think that's what's scary about it because some people may not be able to do that 
And well, yeah, I mean, they the jury for um, Robert Burns had come back and they were split a couple times. Yeah. And then their last question was, what happens if we do say, because his defense ended up being that he was insane, insanity. What happens if we do say that he's uh, not guilty by insanity? Because they didn't want to convict him. But they didn't think that he was insane in that moment. They just thought he was dealing out justice in his own way. But they didn't tell them because they thought it would sway him and probably would that if you say he's guilty by insanity, then he's going to go to an insane asylum. And guess what? When he gets to the insane asylum, the doctors there are going to know that he's not actually insane. So then he gets released, which is what happened. He was released weeks later. And if they had known that, they probably wouldn't have said that he was not guilty by insanity because they don't want him to just walk out the door of this place and never have any consequences. But they also don't want him to go down for, you know, first degree murder, like you kind of like you said. That's like what I think with him. I don't, obviously, I don't know these people or know much about the case other than what was in this book. Which was very small, by the way. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot about the case, which was different than what I was thinking it was going to be. I didn't mind it. I ended up not minding how much it was about Harper Lee, but I went into it thinking it was going to be a lot about the Reverend and his murder. Yeah. And it was really just kind of the first part of the book and everything yeah. else. And they touched back up on it, but not in the same mm-hmm. detail. But I think that, um, I don't think that he was like a danger to society. Right. And I don't think that the jury thought he was either. Like you were saying, I think they did want him to get the consequences because like you said, they did think he deserved something. I don't think anyone was like scared that this man was going to get out and just start like become a serial killer or somebody else. I think they all knew that it was really just because of who the reverend was and what he had allegedly done to all these people and Robert because Robert Burns was family to Shirley. Yeah. He really cared about her. But Um, I mean, uh, to the flip side of that, if he, if he's capable of actually pulling the trigger on someone, he was a war vet. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how much that really does play into it, but if he's capable of pulling the trigger on someone, does that actually mean he's not a danger to society? Because if he can do it and then. And that's something that Tom Rabney wanted to like keep covered. He had Mm -hmm. actually been involved in like violence. Assault. Yeah. Was never charged. It was never put on his record. I think for sure he had some fucking PTSD from war, like especially the Vietnam war. There was some shit that went down there. That was not good. War is never good. That's definitely not good. And then when they came back, there was no fucking help for them. So I'm not taking that away from him at all. And that does tend to lead to like violent outbursts in your life. But does that mean that you get to murder someone? Exactly. You know, I mean, I guess my, my vision of it skewed because I understand it, but from strictly the law side of it, no, you shouldn't. Exactly. Maybe in that moment he was insane. Yeah, but are you insane if you bring a gun to a, a funeral? I mean, because I never, I don't think they mentioned like, <laughs> I don't think they mentioned if he always carried a gun on him or like they didn't really mention like the level of plantness not that i remember it could but uh the level that he planned out this murder this act of insanity so i think you're angry i think you're pissed off i don't think you're insane yeah exactly maybe it wasn't premeditated in the sense that he had planned this and planned this but maybe it was more like a second degree 
where it was like, they, like, what is this at? Like the heat of the moment where yeah. you're up in your feelings and you just, you go through with it, even though you didn't like plan it beforehand. Maybe it was more like that or. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, trial, they, you know, like you said, they charged him as not guilty based off of his insanity. And then he was released. And I mean, we could have cut all this shit off by, you know, putting the reverend in jail when he killed his first wife, but. Very true. true. And if there wasn't enough evidence for that, like, I'm sure with all the other ones, you could have. Well, yeah, like. But he kind of got smarter because when he, like, killed his brother, he made it look like an alcohol overdose. Yeah. Who and his brother was a raging alcoholic. I mean, smarter in some ways, but that was exactly the same. So no, it, that, no, you could have yeah. like had your brother fall off a cliff or something, at least like switch it up somewhere in there. If you're going to say <laughs> he like got drunk and was dangerous, <laughs> then <laughs> you could exact location <laughs> yeah well like switch it the fuck up at least be some kind it's only it's like insulting to the people that you're killing that you're not even putting in the effort to cover it up in any you're so blatantly cocky that you know you can get away with their murder that you do the exact same thing every time it's a bigger fuck you on top of actually killing them yeah. i think that's what bothers me <laughs> that's why i'm so salty about it it's a very big like blatant fuck you to your face that he didn't even try to cover it up. It's almost like a Golden State Killer, like, yeah, complex. Like, oh, you're never gonna catch me because he kind of did the same thing. Mm-hmm. He did all the crimes in like the same areas, and you know, these guys just thought they were above everyone else, um, invincible, and and they like, were for a little while. They were, and yep, you know, that's when things start to. I feel like once that power that they've been feeling like really starts to build and now he's gotten away with it. How many times it's like, who knows if he would have gotten away with Shirley's like, what else? What else he would have done? Yeah. yeah. I think for sure. Ophelia would have been next because she knew too much shit. She knew all his, I feel like she, since she was maybe an accomplice, like maybe his partner, like maybe it could, it was like a Bonnie and Clyde type. Yeah. But for how long though, That's everyone true. is expendable to men like him. Like That's there's. And how, like eventually he was going to like be like, well, I got a cash on her life insurance. Yeah. I mean, I bet you he had insurance policies on her. They don't oh, mention yeah. it, but I want to know. I'm sure he, he had yeah, fucking insurance policies. Innocence. Like she was like, he was not involved in any of the things that these people said he was involved in. Meanwhile, there was like how many men that came forward and was like, no, he came to me and offered me money and part of their life insurance to help him kill these people. Yeah. These people that are now dead. He actually came up to me and was like, hey, help me kill them. Yeah. No, I don't know. The trial itself was a whole, like we talked about, like just as there was all of this like voodoo stuff around Willie and his the reverend in his life and it ended up coming into the trial too so you have like people who they're trying to convince them like hey they, people are legitimately scared of this guy because they think he's this voodoo dude and then on the other side of it is just vigilante justice so it's like two very relatable for the south I'll say especially at that time two very relatable things and Casey writes uh like a part that was super fucking interesting to me because she's talking about how all these dudes were white dudes I think right 
Yeah, all the mm-hmm. yeah, everyone on the jury was a white dude, and they're talking about how she's talking about how both of those things, the spiritual, supernatural part of it and the vigilante like justice of it is relatable to them because she says theirs was a society that not so long ago had written theft into legal treaties with Native Americans and bondage into legal deeds on the lives of African Americans. I thought that was so fucking good. That like moved me because that's 100% true. Like they made all this stuff like oh no it's okay because you're black or no it's okay because you're a native american like yeah this is why this is why i love books honestly because there's such a direct parallel line between what robert burns did and what they thought in their society and their culture these white men in the south was acceptable there's such a and like a big mirror on that and i love when writers can show that without like dragging it and beating it down just writing it so beautifully like that was amazing and that's why i read because like i can't do that shit <laughs> like, so, I cannot. you know it's there you know that it exists but you can't put it into words like that and it really it was really good i think casey step really was like i watched an interview with her and she said kind of like you she knew about harper lee like she knew about to kill a mockingbird and stuff but before she decided to write this she wasn't a huge harper lee fan and just needed to write a book about her it was just something that interested her and then she went off with it and it, i think it shows in her writing how good she is at like yeah. investigating things and mm-hmm. it was such a nice because <laughs> i was so bothered by how biased truman capote was in the last one it was so nice to like even with harper lee she doesn't shy away from the fact that sometimes her writing was shit like sometimes she wasn't writing the best things and she talks about how to kill a mockingbird came along because a lot of people in harper lee's life had a hand in her publisher and like people her agent everyone had a hand in like sculpting to kill a mockingbird from what was it ghost at a watchman mm-hmm. right which was her original book of scout being older and coming back and you know, her dad's kind of on the wrong side of things. I never, did you watch, or did you read Ghost at a Watchman? Yeah, I did, yeah. Was it good? Um, I mean, it was interesting, but it it's, it's hard because of the circumstances, which they kind of touch on how it came out. And, right. Um, so it was like, I wanted to read it because I know, I knew it was like the original manuscript of To Kill a Mockingbird, but it's like, and you can tell that like it needed work. Um, it was interesting because you got to see another part of Scout's life and Atticus and all that, but it's a touchy subject because- Right, did you like the turn? Probably the, not. <laughs> did you like the turn that Atticus took? Was that- I think it made sense for the time. Um, okay. Not that it's an excuse. Um, no, I think she wrote from- her life i think she it's it talks about in this book how even harper lee has a very like privileged view on race and very privileged like you know what was happening around her yes yeah she had a she had a point of view that was very privileged to write it from so yeah i think one of my like favorite parts of ghost at a watchman because um in to kill a mockingbird they have their like nanny made copernica Copernia and uh you know it's like scouts like mom because they don't have a mom her and Jim and like she helps like raise them 
And then Scout goes to visit her as an adult. And she realizes that there's a lot of like animosity because she has spent like so much time away from her own children. Mm -hmm. And she, she wasn't their mother. And like, she knew that she was, it wasn't the same. It's buying her attention. And yeah, shattered scouts view and like how she remembered it because I need to read that then. Cause I think that's really realize that, you know, yeah, when you're a kid, you think it's just coming. Yeah, you think it's just coming from a place of love. And, like, you don't realize that this person is being forced into a job to support their family and their loved ones. And yeah, and then Cal, like, never got to spend time with her family because she was raising two white children who mm-hmm. she knew was never going to, it was never going to be, it was never the same. Like, she knew that she was a Black woman in the South. And right, and they're going to grow up and leave her and go off and do their own thing. how well this family treated her, it was ne- they were never equals. Right. And she knew that. And then as Scout got older, she realized that too. But that's one of my favorite parts of the book, like her going back and just getting a different view, like just on her whole life, not even just her father, but just how innocent you are as a child. You don't, yeah. you don't think about that stuff when you're a kid you learn it as you get older and I know I used to say like it was interesting to see but I mean it was nothing it was not to kill a mockingbird (laughs) no but I think like like you said it probably it came from someplace I think it was all personal all her good stuff was like personal to her stuff she saw around her on her life Mm -hmm. and honestly like I feel like if she had wanted to turn it into an actual sequel and fine tuned it. I think it could have, I think it could have been, you know, something. But yeah. But that's, that's something amazing about this book is it really does pinpoint how double like edge. Well, I don't know if that's saying double sided her fame from Chakilling Mockingbird was because it literally destroyed some of her love of writing. It literally destroyed like, she didn't want to be a public person. She didn't want to be. She was not Truman Capote who ate up the spotlight. She was someone very reserved and very shy. And like, we know nothing of her love life. We know yeah. very few, like her family. We know that she loved them, but we don't really know the integral parts of her relationships with them. Like we know very few things about her and she really did not want to be freaking famous. And she really did not. And to kill a mockingbird kind of smashed that she did. I don't think she expected it to be what it was. Right. And I don't think she knew where to go from there. Yeah. And so it kind of killed something for her. To have that success of a first book. Mm-hmm. And not only because it was like good writing, but the story that it told, like it was, it's a timeless piece. So, you know, people still read it and they still, like, it's still. Right. They teach it in schools and it's still, right. yes, it's super it's important. It's such a prominent piece of literature. And to have that be your first book, that great of a success. As a writer, like, can you imagine trying to follow up after that? Nope. Because then you feel inferior to yourself. And she was like a perfectionist because there was a part where it was said that her, like, uh, publishers would publish her grocery list. Like, if it had Lily's name on it, they would publish it no matter what. And she didn't want to give them anything less than perfect. And it's such a, a interesting look into someone's mind who's that creative and can tell such a story and, like, but it's so like negative and dark in there too about themselves and like they can't come to terms with their writing and like if they like it or don't like it. 
and same with Truman Capote. Like he had, he was fucked up and he overdosed and it wasn't his first time. He had overdosed a bunch. Like there's something it it's ridiculous, but it's like Kanye West. Like there's something like that. I feel like in order to be that creative and make this beautiful thing happen, there also has to be a very dark side of it. It's, I don't think it comes out of nowhere. And that's a very big like price to pay for putting this amazing book that, teaches people all over the world all like every day something that's a lot of weight that's a lot of heftiness and darkness on you yeah i can't imagine not to mention she dropped out of law school four weeks before she was finished four weeks just just finished girl just finished like at that point i would have just finished (laughs) and then be a then be a writer like who cares? But at least you finished. Her too, or she at the university? She was at, I think, probably University of Alabama. Um, she switched because she was at an all-girls yeah, like university all-girls first, school. and she didn't fit in at all. Mm-hmm. I'm so over the word tomboy when I kept reading this. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? So she didn't like to like dress up and go to dances and blah blah blah. Does that make you a girl? No, it doesn't make you a boy her being like a lesbian and stuff because she like her hair cut short and whether she was or she wasn't like what does that even matter so Truman Capote said that she wasn't and honestly I have a feeling this is just pulling it out of my ass but I think they had something like I think he was like because he wasn't fully gay he had like um relationships with women off and on I think they had a relationship at one point and that's why their friendship was so like tumultuous I think there's I think they had something. That's just my like gut feeling. But again, who who gives yeah, a shit? She could have just been asexual and not been yeah, like, she could have, yeah. anything and like doesn't matter. But yeah, people were so enthralled with her because she was so private. They just Because yeah, people want to know like the dirty details of everyone's business all the time. Me included, dude. I'm not like saying that I'm <laughs> obviously I read these stories and I want to know more. And, it's such a bad part of our human nature, I think. And she really just wanted to be left the fuck alone. I do think it was sweet that like when she would get fan mail from children, she would answer. Oh yeah. No, I think that was really, really sweet because, you know, she, she, she did know that what she created was important and what, yeah. but she didn't want it to take over her life in the way that it unfortunately did. But I think it was still good that she did connect with readers still and, I think that was really like cute that she would write the children back that would send her mail. No. And I think she was trying to like, think about when you were a kid and you wrote someone who you thought was really special or important to you. I think she was trying to get like, keep that magic alive in kids. And that's really a sweet thing in general. Her love of writing and storytelling came from when she was a child. Right. And people were telling her, you know, in Monroeville, she didn't, there was like really nothing to do and they would make up their own stories and their own things to play. And she probably wanted, you know, to have these kids still be inspired and, you know, didn't want to take away that magic of childhood and childhood innocence. Yeah. I think it would have been cool to know her as a person, but unfortunately she was so fiercely private because everyone did want to know every single thing about her. Like, there wasn't a lot to know about her, and that's kind of sad. Yeah. Not in, like, a salacious way, but I had no fucking idea she died in 2016. 
I thought she died in the 90s. No, because Ghost at a Watchman was published when she was still alive. I thought she had already died. But it was, she was in really poor health. She was, yeah, she was uh, towards the end. That's why it's such a touchy thing because people wonder if it was, if she didn't actually approve it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think she did um, just because of. She was such a perfectionist, like you were saying. I don't think she would have. I feel like if she wanted Ghost at a Watchman published, she probably would have done it years and years and years ago when she was like working. When everyone was begging for something else from her. She still wanted to write because eventually she gave it up. So I just don't think that after having this, like such an up and down relationship with writing and then just giving it up because it wasn't making her happy. She realized that what it was doing to her, I don't think she would have chosen to publish it. Yeah, I agree with you. But I mean, I don't know. Maybe she was like, you know what? I'm going to die. This was, this was, you know, essentially what started me. Maybe, but no, I'm shaking my head. I'm shaking my head. No, because I feel like the like we said, she she waited so long and she said no to so much. Like she could have wrote this book about the reverend. The whole basis of why we're here with this book, she could have turned it into a story. She had the ability, she had the words, she had the basis of a storyline that she could have turned into some, but she didn't want to force something like that. And I don't think she would have wanted to force Ghost at a Watchman like it was. So, yeah. Unfortunately, that's the end of Harper Lee, 2016. I had no fucking idea. And she wasn't died when she was 103 yeah Alice that yeah and she was still practicing law when she died I know I read that I was like what a badass bitch digits I was like what what the heck that's crazy what a badass bitch the whole family like that when her sister died that's when the person that published the book became like in charge of Harper Lee's estate because before that it was her sister and her sister died and yeah see that's and it's all just very like murky and i don't think it's very uh i don't know the word i'm trying to say ethical <laughs> yeah ethical that's perfect yes yeah i don't i don't like it at all so maybe i won't read it it's crazy how long these things take too. how long it took Truman Compote because you kind of just think about the story as a whole and like how long it takes you to read it. You don't right. think about the years of work that goes yeah. into it. I thought it was like really interesting too, because like Harper Lee said that when they went to Kansas, they were like pretty much ready to go. And then the killers got caught. And yeah. And the whole book pivoted. Compote never planned on finding out who the killers were. Yeah, he had this like story like in his mind as they were getting all this information, and then it kind of had to change because now they figured out, you know, the mystery. They figured out who did it, and he kind of had to rework it. And you, Harper Lee talks about too, like we talked about how she could see him forming this bond with mm-hmm. Harry Smith and a lot of the people she felt like only even talked to her, talked to them because she was there. And Oh yeah. Even the, the officers on the case said that they wouldn't have, they didn't like Truman. They didn't like him at all. It was all Harper. Like it was a weird dynamic. Yeah. Which is funny because I felt like closest with the parts about the family and things like that. And I feel like 
Not that, I mean, Truman Capote. No, she, it says that she did, like, the, the things she gave yeah, him the, were the, the details. I liked the most of the mm -hmm. book was the stuff that his biases weren't, like. Yes, exactly. Like, feeling like the scenes with the families, how their, their, like, home was set up when the crime happened. All of that came from Harper Lee. And that's the stuff that really made me not just write the book off completely because I was so frustrated with his telling of these two men that yeah so it is interesting that you know harper lee was that and again i didn't know how in-depth of because it just said she was a researcher when i looked it up for in cold blood i didn't know how in-depth she was into it when we read it so that was i'm glad we did these back to back because i think they went really well together she had like a great relationship with agent dewey who like cracked the case mm -hmm. And she actually writes about that, like Casey does, about Harper Lee. And one of the struggles she was having with writing The Reverend was that there wasn't this, like, heroic focus. She was like, there was no Agent Dewey who, like, you know, was the kind of the hero of In Cold Blood. Yeah. And nobody yep. really liked that in the case of The Reverend. And I think that she just really... Yeah, there was no one to like said they they went back and forth with Todd Ratney of being in this but I didn't think she wanted to set him up as that person because he did in his own way play a role in these murders like he kept defending he kept getting him off so that's not really I mean today you can write a book that has an anti-hero and it goes over well but back then it was such kind of like a every book needs to have a villain and a hero and it needs to be clear cut so yeah I think Maybe you could have wrote a book about Todd Randy being the anti-hero and his love for law and defending people and how that played into him defending the reverend. That would and be a good book. Exactly. I just, I don't, I understand what you're saying. Like, especially with back then, I think people have more like open mind to things now because different stories. Yeah. Nobody's perfect. Mm -hmm. And yes, like with some of, the things that Tom Radney defended, was it maybe the best decision she's ever made? No, but it happened. And that doesn't necessarily like cancel out all the good he did. And so, yeah, I think it, like you said, it would have been okay to have like this anti-hero because I think we're more open to that now, but back then it probably might not have gone over so well. We've gotten kicked in the, you know, fucking gut a couple of times, you know, having Trump as president and <laughs> just we've come a long way from thinking everything needs to be black and white as a society. So yeah, I think writing has changed as our society has changed. And I think the reason to kill a mockingbird was so successful back then and then still like resonates with people is because there was a very clear hero right. villain dynamic there. And it's telling a story that needed to be told. So, and it gives you a sense of completion, I think, at the end of it. Like, okay, you know, so this, he ended up not being, he ended up still dying for a murder he didn't commit, but there is a sense of justice, vigilante justice after that. So it's like, there's still kind of a completion to it where now I think we could read something and be like, well, that's just the way the fucking cookie crumbles. Like, Sometimes you don't get the happy ending and the guy who didn't come, like fucking Green Mile. That's oh for <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. 
that fucking makes me cry every single time. But sometimes that's just the way the shitty world is, is that maybe we stop where the guy gets murdered for something he didn't do. Yeah. Well, anyways, that was depressing. But <laughs> so overall, would you recommend this book? Um, If you like true crime, like if you like nonfiction-y, then yes. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I, like I said, I liked how In Cold Blood read as a novel. Yeah. Like a fiction novel. But this, I'm getting more into the like factual writing. So it didn't, this didn't hinder me. Um, I think it was interesting. There was like twists and turns, especially in the beginning, like Mm -hmm. with all the insurance fraud, I think it had substance. Because it is like a it's a good it's a good story entertainment wise, which sounds so fucked up because these people really did die and I'm not taking that away and I'm not but like based solely on the fact that she was gonna write a book, a book about it would be interesting to read. Yeah. So I think yeah. And then there was some touchy subjects too I wanted to because as we were talking about like with the publishing of Ghost at a Watchman was mm-hmm. like the biographies that were written about oh yeah about her yeah that she didn't I think that was really really like fudged up um because she one of the people like moved in next door yeah and they became friends right and then she wrote this book and Harper Lee was like that's not it's such a violation like you think you're just being a friend to this person and she was very secretive about a lot of stuff and very like guarded with even friends and that's exactly why and that's so fucked up like what do you get out of it? You money, greed. Yeah. And she had agreed to a biography with a writer. Yeah. But she insisted that it couldn't be worked on and published until after her death. So that she did agree eventually to one. But I think it's really kind of shitty that people kind of took advantage of, especially the person who lived next door to her. Yeah. Like, that's kind of crappy. Like, if you want to do your own research and act like you, like... If you want to write a book about her, write a book about what you know about her. Don't become, like, entwined in this person's life to get money off when you know she doesn't want a book written about her. And then eventually, like, all the case files and, like, all the research that Tom Radney had that he had lent to Harper Lee was given back to the family. And And that's where, yeah, that's where Casey Sepp comes in because she got her hands on that and... It comes full circle eventually, but years and years later. But I think it's really nice because Tom Radney's family said it, they're very happy like that his story did get to finally be told. And because he did do a lot of, you know, work for civil rights and equal rights and everything. So I think that's important, especially in a state like Alabama. This is true. He was very radical for, he got death threats and stuff. He was very yeah. radical for Alabama. So you yeah. can't take that that's away from that's him. That's why it's like really cool because you don't see many hardcore Democrats like that. Like, mm-hmm. especially probably back then, like what he was standing up for was super, like you said, radical. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I think it's like important to know that not everyone in the South is. Yeah. I feel like I fall into the trap of the Southern, uh, you know, what is it called? The Southern, like what the misconceptions, the Southern, like 
not stereotypes. I fall into that a lot because there there's a lot of truth to some of them. Like especially going to high school and you know halfway growing up in the South, there's a lot of truth to that shit. But there are people who are fighting super hard for it not to be like that. So there there are people who like it was talking about with Tom Radney who take a lot of pride in being from the South and take a lot of like love and history from it, but they also want to change things for the better. So I think we have to remember that because sometimes I forget and tend to just say the South is shitty. (laughs) Yeah. Don't we all know? Don't we all? So that was it. That was Furious Hours. It was interesting. I liked it a lot. I did too. I liked it more than I thought it would. I think I would ever, yeah. I don't think I'd ever reread it. Um, I think it was a one and done for me, but I loved knowing more about, like, after we read True, um, In Cold Blood, after we read In Cold Blood, I loved knowing more history, so I'm glad, I'm very glad we read them back to back and did that, because. Yeah, because I don't think it would have, like, been as, not that I wouldn't have enjoyed it, but I think that we got even more enjoyment out of it because we just came off of In Cold Blood. Yeah, and I think I'm ready to be done with this. Before this it would I don't think it would have been as cool because we it, like it's still fresh yeah and I think I'm ready to be done with like the older crimes for right the second so I'm excited right. to go into our next book which is going to be really tough but next episode we're going to be covering uh, know my name by Chanel Miller and it's the story of the survivor of the Brock Turner assault so it's going to be heavy, but I've already started reading some of it and it's already amazing. And I'm excited to hear her story from her and the way it should be told. And I'm already like tearing up about it. So it's going to be a sad, sappy <laughs> episode, but I'm excited to go into something more personal, more close to 100% worth it. Yeah. Just that story, like you said, more personal. Um, it's, it's important. So yeah, I'm definitely excited. So, yeah so that's it guys thanks for joining us at the crime library and i don't know we'll see you next time yeah bye, yeah. bye.